Meet Reed Lance Rosenthal, rancher, number one best-selling award-winning author, and unabashedly, unapologetically, on the right side of the outstanding issues of our generation. But don't try to fence him in. Sometimes his positions will surprise you, because Reed is definitely his own man, with his own opinions. You might love him, you might hate him, but you won't be able to stop listening. Step over to the right side with Reed. Howdy, listeners from coast to coast, the Gulf to Canada. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. Yup, your hayseed in Wyoming giving you the cowboy's take. And let me tell you, for this show, folks, not only saddle up, not only tighten the cinch, but you better lash yourself to the pommel so you don't get bucked off. And how about we begin with a founder's quote, Benjamin Franklin, again, apropos to this show, to the T. Quote, security without liberty is called prison, unquote. So... Last week, we talked about globalism, the Great Reset, the New World Order. I call it the NWOGR. And we talked about history of it. And many of you were shocked, I know, based on the emails I got. And by the way, the email is on the right side radio at Reagan.com, on the right side radio at Reagan.com. Feel free to share what you think. But we got up to about 1958. You were shocked to find out that this goes all the way back to about 1913. And the names that are involved and their quotes, which I'm going to bring you again today, from about 1958 on up to the current time, and then the really startling rest of the story. Oh, wait till they see what they have planned for us, folks. Oh, what joy. And then I'm going to bring you up to speed on some COVID stuff and rat-a-tat-tat. COVID stuff, you say, oh my God, I don't want to hear about COVID stuff. Folks, the point of the globalist spear is COVID. It's your health. That's how they plan to wrest control from you. Wait till you hear what I have to tell you today. It's (laughs) frightening. How's that? Frightening. So 1958, it's about where we left off. A world peace through world law is published. Grenville Clark and Lois Sohn. Do you recognize that name? Remember the Sohn that's going to be appointed in one of the higher mucky-muck bastions of the government? You know, the, the watchdog bastions by Biden? Yes. You know, it's amazing how these names keep resurfacing. And they advocated the UN as a governing body for the world. World disarmament, a world police force, and a world legislature. In 1959, once again, the Council on Foreign Relations, the CFR, boy, they have been active in this since the very beginning. They call for a new international order called Study Number 7. Quote, new international order must be responsive to world aspirations for peace, for social and economic change. An international order, including states labeling themselves as socialist or communist. 1959. The World Constitution and Parliament Association is founded. They later, unbelievably, develop a diagram of world government under the Constitution for the Federation of the Earth. You thought this was just recent, huh? 1959, the mid-century challenge to U.S. foreign policy. It's sponsored by the Rockefellers Fund. Oh, gee, where have we heard their name before? The U.S., quote, cannot escape and indeed should welcome the task which history has imposed on us. This is the task of helping shape a new world order in all its dimensions, spiritual, economic, political, and social. September 9th, 1960, Eisenhower signs the Senate Joint Resolution 170. 
and that promotes the concept of a federal Atlantic Union. For it becomes clear that the first step toward world government cannot be completed until we have advanced on the four fronts, economic, military, political, and social. 1961, the U.S. State Department comes up with a plan to disarm all the nations on the earth and instead arm the United Nations. Oh, that's terrific. Just, you know, blue helmets in your front yard. The State Department document, by the way, is called number 7277, and it's called Freedom from War. The U.S. program for general and complete disarmament in a peaceful world. Quote, no state would have the military power to challenge the progressively strengthened U.N. peace force. 1962, a world effectively controlled by the United Nations, another book. Another Council of Foreign Affairs member, Lincoln Bloomfield, quote, the communist dynamic was greatly abated. The West might lose whatever incentive it has for world government. Then, The Future of Federalism, authored by none other than Nelson Rockefeller himself. You know, he was a one-time governor of New York, by the way. And he says that current events compels a new world order. Quote, there are some reasons pressing us to lead vigorously toward the true building of a new world order, voluntary service, and our dedicated faith in the brotherhood of all mankind. Sooner than perhaps we may realize, there will evolve the basis for federal structure of the free world. 1963, J. William Fulbright, he's the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, believe it or not, and he's speaking at a symposium, quote, the case for government by elites is irrefutable. Government by the people is possible, but highly improbable, unquote. And of course, 1963 saw the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Everybody said it was the mob, or it was Cuba, or it was Russia, or it was LBJ, but... John F. Kennedy was a nationalist, not a globalist. Think about Ronald Reagan, the next nationalist president. They almost killed him with an assassination attempt. Think about Donald Trump, the next nationalist president. They tried several times, never did any physical harm, but they assassinated his character with fake news and trumped up stuff embodied in the bowels and the corruption of the deep state. 1964, the Taxonomy of Educational Objectives, Handbook Number 2, is published. The author, Benjamin Bloom, quote, A large part of what we call good teaching is the teacher's ability to attain effective objectives through challenging the student's fixed belief. <laughs> you know, once again, you can see there are little myths into education because, you know, as Hitler said, doesn't matter what you think, we have your children. By the way, his education was called outcome-based education. It was a total wreck wherever it was tried. It was first tried in Chicago schools. And their students' test scores plummeted, plummeted, and parents were outraged. Basically, OBE would leave a trail of wreckage whenever it was tried and wherever it was tried. 1964, Visions of Order by Richard Weaver. Quote, progressive educators as a revolutionary cabal engage in a systematic attempt to undermine society's traditions and beliefs. <laughs> and you wonder what's going on in your schools, huh? Grandma, Grandpa, and folks, parents. 1967, Richard Nixon, he calls for a new world order. He writes a memo, Asia after Vietnam, in the October issue of, gee, Foreign Affairs. You know, the Council of Foreign Affairs magazine. And he talks about the development and the evolution of a, quote, new world order. 
1968, Joy Elmer Morgan, the former editor of the NEA Journal, right, the National Education Association, the largest teachers' union, publishes the American Citizen's Handbook, quote, The coming of the United Nations and the urgent necessity that it evolves into a more comprehensive form of world government places upon the citizens of the United States an increased obligation to make the most of their citizenship, which now widens into active world citizenship. 1968, Nelson Rockefeller again, pledges support to the New World Order. Quote, as president, I will work toward an international creation of a new world order, unquote. 1970, education, mass media, they start promoting the New World Order. There's a piece called The Thinking About a New World Order for the Decade 1990. Ian Baldwin, Jr., the author. The World Law Fund has begun a worldwide research and educational program that will introduce a new emerging discipline, world order, into educational curricula throughout the world and to concentrate some of its energies on bringing basic world order concepts into the mass media again on a worldwide level. 1972, Nixon visits China. Some of us remember that. And the Chinese premier at that time, Chou Enlai, a former, by the way, Council of Foreign Affairs, <laughs> Foreign Relations member, and now President Richard Nixon, expresses, quote, the hope that each of us has to build a new world order, unquote. May 18, 1972, Roy M. Ash, the director of the Office of Management and Budget, Quote, within two decades, the institutional framework for a world economic community will be in place and aspects of individual sovereignty will be given over to a supernatural authority. In 1973, the Trilateral Commission is established. I know you've heard of that. It's established by none other than banker David Rockefeller. Oh, here we go again. And it organizes the new private body and chooses Brzezinski, later the National Security Advisor, to President Carter as the commission's first director. Yeah, well, the Trilateral Commission, folks, which is still in existence today, was, was kind of the precursor to the World Economic Forum. You know, our, our friend Klaus Schwab. Yes, Klaus Schwab. In 1977, the Trilateral Connection appears in the July edition of Atlantic Monthly. It's written by a guy by the name of Jeremiah Novak. Quote, For the third time in this century, a group of American schools, businessmen, and government officials is planning to fashion a new world order. 1977, leading educator Mortimer Adler publishes Philosopher at Large. Quote, If local civil government is necessary for local civil peace, then world civil government is necessary for world peace. In 1979, Barry Goldwater he was a retiring Republican senator from Arizona, ran for president. Everybody thought he was crazy. He wasn't crazy at all. He publishes his autobiography. It's called With No Apologies. Quote, in my view, the, tri the Trilateral Commission re represents a skillful, coordinated effort to seize control and consolidate the four centers of power, political, monetary, intellectual, and ecclesiastical. All this to be done in the supposed interest of creating a more peaceful, more productive world community. But what trilateralists truly intend is the creation of a worldwide economic power superior to the political governments of the nation states involved. They believe that the abundant materialism they propose to create will overwhelm existing differences and they will rule the future. 1984, The Power to Lead is published. James McGregor Burns, quote, 
The framers of the U.S. Constitution have been simply too shrewd for us. They have outwitted us. They designed separate institutions that cannot be unified by mechanical linkages, failed bridges, or tinkering. If we are to turn the founders upside down, we must directly confront the constitutional structures they erected. Remember what I told you. For them to win, they have to destroy the pillars of the Western world and particularly of America. Faith, family, and the Constitution. 1985, Norman Cousins, the chairman of Planetary Citizens for the World We Choose. Oh, my, I am so excited. World government is coming. In fact, it's inevitable. No arguments for or against it can change that fact. By the way, Cousins was also the president of an outfit called World Federalist Association, which was an affiliate of the World Association for World Federation. They're headquartered in Amsterdam, and they're credited by the UN as an NGO. Remember those names, because they'll come up again. 1987, the secret constitution and the need for constitutional change. Oh, sponsored by the Rockefeller Foundation. Who would have thought? A pervasive system, this is a quote, of thought control exists in the United States. The citizenry is indoctrinated by employment of the mass media and the system of public education. People are told what to think about. The old order is crumbling. Nationalism should be seen as a dangerous social disease. (laughs) A global vision that will transcend national boundaries and eliminate the prison of nationalistic solutions. A new constitution is necessary. In 1988, the former Undersecretary of State and, gee, Council of Foreign Relations member George Ball, remember his name? He writes this, uh, he's in an interview in the New York Times. Sooner or later, we're going to have to face restructuring our institutions so they are not confined merely to the nation states. Start first on a regional and ultimately you could move to a world basis. 1989, Carl Bernstein, remember Woodward and Bernstein, Watergate? He writes a book, Loyalties, a son's memoir. His father and mother, by the way, had been members of the American Communist Party. Probably didn't know that. And Bernstein's father tells his son about the book, quote, You're going to prove Senator Joseph McCarthy was right, because all he was saying is that the system was loaded with communists, and he was right. 1990, the World Federalist Association, remember them? We were just talking about them. They write in their summer-fall newsletter, It's sad but true that the slow-witted American press has not grasped the significance of most of these developments. They're talking about globalism. But most of the Federalists know what is happening, and they are not frightened by the old bugaboo of sovereignty. And when we come back, I'm going to finish up this history, and then I'm going to bring you into current times, and I'm going to tell you the chilling rest of the story. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal back with you on On the Right Side Radio. We're going to finish up this historical perspective of the NWOGR New World Order Great Reset, and then I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. Chilling rest of the story. September 11th, 1990, Bush, you know, Bush number one, calls the Gulf War an opportunity for, quote, the New World Order. In fact, he addresses Congress. The crisis in the Persian Gulf offers a rare opportunity to move toward a historic period of cooperation. The world, east and west, north and south, can prosper and live in harmony. Today, the new world is struggling to be born. In 1991, also, Linda McRae Campbell, she publishes How to Start a Revolution at Your School in Context. And she promotes the use of, quote, change agents, teachers, as the self-acknowledged revolutionaries and co-conspirators. 
1991, Bush Sr. praises the New World Order again. State of the Union message, no less. What is at stake is more than one small country. It's a big idea, a new world order. The winds of change are with us now. Oh, and then President Bush again, February 6, 1991, Economic Club of New York. Quote, my vision of a new world order foresees a United Nations with a revitalized peacekeeping function. In other words, an army. June 1991, again, the Council on Foreign Relations. And they, they sponsored this symposium. It's called Rethinking America's Security Beyond Cold War to the New World Order. Well, basically, this is attended by the Bilderbergers and a hundred other world leaders. And the Bilderbergers, folks, at that time were shaping, along with the Trilateral Commission and all the forerunners to the World Economic Forum and what you see today, foreign policies of all the Western nations. October 29, 1991. David Funderbuck, he's a former U.S. ambassador to Romania. He has his head on straight. He resigns. He's so upset over where this is going. George Bush has been surrounding himself with people who believe in one world government. Alexandria, Virginia, counselor to the Minister of the Education of Russia. He delivers this keynote speech. This is October 30th, 1991. The program is entitled Education for a New World Order. Quote, the Twilight of Sovereignty by CFR member and former city court chairman Walter Riston. A truly global economy will require compromises of national security. There is no escaping the system. Do you see how all these people are interlinked internationally, through commerce, through banking, through money? Money is the link. 1992, the United Nations Conference on Environment and Development, the Earth Summit. Rio de Janeiro, I've talked to you about this on the history of climate change on the rightsideradio.com. Listen to those historical stories, folks. I mean, they all converge into what I'm sharing with you now. July 20th, 1992, Time Magazine. They publish a piece called The Birth of the Global Nation by a guy by the name of Talbot. And he's a roommate of Bill Clinton at Oxford University. He's also on the Council of Foreign Relations. And he's also a trilateralist. Imagine that. Quote, all countries are basically social arrangements, no matter how permanent or even sacred they may seem at any one time. In fact, they are all artificial and temporary. Perhaps national sovereignty was not such a great idea after all. By the way, Talbot, as an editor of Time, he defended Clinton during the presidential campaign and he was rewarded. He was appointed by President Clinton as the number two person at the State Department behind the Secretary of State Warren Christopher, who, by the way, was also a former trilateralist and a former Council of Foreign Relations member. In fact, he was a vice chairman and director. Wow, how all the birds of a feather do flock together, squawk, 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 flap, flap, flap. So there's this town hall meeting in Los Angeles, and a trilateralist, gee, big surprise, and former Council of Foreign Relations folk, President Wilson Lord delivers a speech, Changing Our Ways, America and the New World. Quote, to a certain extent, we're going to have to yield some of our sovereignty, which will be controversial at home under the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA. Some Americans are going to be hurt as low-wage jobs are taken away. Unquote. By the way, Lord later became Assistant Secretary of State in the Clinton administration. Imagine that. 1992-1993, Council of Foreign Relations again. 
their foreign affairs magazine. They publish an article empowering the United Nations. It is undeniable that the centuries-old doctrine of absolute and exclusive sovereignty no longer stands. It is a sense that increasingly finds expression in the gradual expansion of international law. In this setting, the significance of the United Nations should be evident and accepted. Oh, whoa, wait till we get to the rest of the story. Yes, you'll see what we're talking about there. And then our buddy Strobe Talbot, remember him? He gets the Norman Cousins Global Governance Award. Oh, God, I'm thrilled for him. I'm just, oh, my heart's going pitter-patter. 1992 Time article, The Birth of the Global Nation. <laughs> yeah, great. Then we have July of 1993. Another Council of Foreign Relations member and trilateralist, Henry Kissinger. Remember him? And he's writing in the Los Angeles Times about NAFTA. Quote, what Congress will have before it is not a conventional trade agreement, but the architecture of a new international system, a first step toward a new world order. Gee, I wonder why Trump wanted to abolish that. Hmm. August 23, 1993, Christopher Hitchens, a socialist friend of Bill Clinton at Oxford University, quote, It is, of course, the case that there is a ruling class in this country and that it has allies internationally, unquote. Boy, how true that is. The Washington Post, Richard Harwood, October 30, 1993, their membership, and he's talking about the Council of Foreign Relations, their membership is an acknowledgement of their ascension into the American ruling class. They do not merely analyze and interpret foreign policy for the United States. They help make it. Oh, terrific. It's just terrific. I'm so happy. You know, folks, we're in good hands. It's kumbaya time. 1995, the State of the World Forum. And that takes place in the fall of 1995. And by the way, George Bush, Mikhail Gorbachev, Margaret Thatcher, Maurice Strong, they're all in attendance. And the term, they decide that the term global governance should now be used in place of new world order. So that's where that term went to, folks. You know how they changed global warming to climate change? Yes. I mean, they're masters at this. And they figured that new world order had become a political liability, a lightning rod for opponents. So now they just changed the name. Oh, terrific. 1996, the United Nations, a 420-page report of gibberish, our global neighborhood, and it outlines the plan for global governance. And it calls on a big conference in the year 2000, which, by the way, did not really happen. The United Nations kind of went on its own, you know, Agenda 2021. 1996, State of the World Forum 2, another, should we say, globalist conclave. And this time, all the sessions were closed to the press. And let's leap forward, shall we? Let's leap forward to 2020. And in 2020, Donald Trump attends the World Economic Forum with his buddy, not so much, Klaus Schwab. And you see three competing versions, three competing visions for this new world order, right? Donald Trump said, no, nationalist, full-scale U.S. retreat from the current order, America first. Then you had the Chinese leaders. And of course, they proposed the new global economic system built around China. Gee, what a big surprise. We're going to talk about that next week. And other Western leaders, Justin Trudeau, Trudy up there, and Emmanuel Macron from France, they wanted to just kind of double down on the current liberal, as it's called, order. 
This article, by the way, was written by a bunch of globalists, including Susan Rice. <laughs> you know, Susan Rice. Yeah. Benghazi Susan. Quote, the global liberal order is an advanced state of meltdown. And as the world rapidly shifts from a unipolar, that means sovereign nations, to a multipolar, that means many nations all together, the international system itself is exposed to profound instability, which, of course, they hastened with COVID. Now, the rest of the story here, we're going to go over China and where they sit in all this because they envision themselves with a role and they're creating that role with the help of traders in the United States government and elsewhere in the West, people that they've bought and sold. Where we are now is the instrument, the point of the spear, and this is the rest of the story, has been COVID and the lockdowns and the mandates and the controls and the tracking. But it's far worse than that because all this has been practiced for the World Health Organization, the WHO which right now, as I talk to you, is drafting a global pandemic treaty on pandemic preparedness. That would grant it through the United Nations. It's an arm of the United Nations, folks. See how far back this goes. Absolute power over global biosecurity. The power to implement digital identities, vaccine passports, mandatory vaccinations, travel restrictions, standardized medical care, and more. Way more. Way more. The WHO will accept two more days of public comment. There's been a bunch of it. And that'll be June 16th and 17th, 22. So, you know, you might want to write your senators, you might want to write your congressmen, and you might want to write the WHO. Because this is all the grand end plan to strip away your individual rights and liberties. And to strip away the rights and powers of sovereign states. Which, under President Cadaver and Obama's third term, we are rushing pell-mell toward it. You know, not only are we rushing toward it, the United States, very quietly, is actually in the lead of putting together this plan. A treaty, which, by the way, has to be ratified by the United States Senate. Do you see how important these Senate races are in 2022? Because without Senate ratification, the United States will not enter this treaty. And if it does enter this treaty, under the guise of this global pandemic and safety, you know, remember... Ben Franklin's quote here from the beginning of the show. The WHO, the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, and it's all its installed leaders in government and private business are going to be rolling out a plan that they've been working on for decades. Basically in the name of keeping everyone safe, you know, there's that word again, from infection, the globalists will justify attacks and stripping of democracy, representative republic, civil liberties, personal freedoms, including, by the way, the right to choose your own medical treatment. You already saw that around the United States. Ivermectin, HCQ, protocols at the hospitals by the CDC. You've already seen it. This was all kind of a test run for the big push. And guess who gets to determine if there's a pandemic or an epidemic? Oh, well, under this treaty, the who gets to figure it out. Not you, not me, not our country, but the who. They will decide if there's a pandemic. And if there is a pandemic, they can assume their emergency powers. You know, all the stuff that's been practiced by all these government schleps over the last two years. This was all a practice session. They wanted to see how far they could push people, how far they could push the envelope. You know, the IHR, by the way, the IHR is International Health Regulations. The United States, under Bush 2, 
another globalist, signed onto it in 2005. And guess who's leading the charge to toughen up those IHR standards? That's right. The United States of America under cadaver, Obama third term, and their cabal up there in the White House and Congress. So you can see how all this is playing out. And by the way, all these articles and a bunch of great videos are on the website. I just don't have time to cover it all for you. I so urge you to watch these videos. They are on the current show. They are under the audio bar. They are in the Globalist page. They are in the Globalist section of the news articles on the rightsideradio.com. This article that I'm going over with you, which is by Mercola, is there, and it will also tell you how you can kind of get involved in the fight against this grab for globalist power and grab for your individual rights. By the way, the U.S. proposal for major IHR rule changes, which was obtained by an outfit called Health Policy Watch, is frightening. It is all the things that you would think George Orwell would have written about in 1984. So we need to gear up. First of all, we need to win these upcoming elections. The House, for sure. The Senate, absolutely critical to what's going on out there. You can't get a treaty affirmed without a vote of the Senate. It's that simple. The Senate may be the last bulwark against this globalist grab for power that we can throw at them. And remember, they're planning 2024. What's going on there? Oh, another presidential election. Hmm. And when we come back, the rest of the rest of the story, oh yes, it even gets worse, folks, on this globalism thrust of the point of the spear. And rat-a-tat-tat. This is the rest of the rest of the story. Our buddy Bill Gates, you know, he's the largest funder of who? And, of course, he makes all sorts of money on vaccines. He's already told you that himself in videos. Well, he recently announced he's building a pandemic response team for the WHO. And he's calling it the Global Epidemic Response and Mobilization, or the GERM team. And it'll be made up of thousands of disease experts who will operate under the WHO, and they'll monitor nations and decide, quote, I'm quoting him, Decide on when they need to suspend civil liberties, force populations to wear masks, and close borders. By the way, this was an article in the Counter Signal. And, you know, WHO and Gates, their announcement of the germ team coincides perfectly, if you don't think this is all planned, coincides perfectly with the World Health Organization's drafting of the Global Pandemic Treaty. So now you know the rest of the story. And let me tell you, that when we get into rat-a-tat-tat here today, I'm going to bring you some updated information on COVID, which you can also find probably the greatest collection of stuff on the web under our COVID page. The homepage on the rightsideradio.com, upper right, click on COVID page. I mean, you can sit there for days and read all this stuff. And they're all in chronological order. Folks, needless to say, I've run over on this history of globalism. The New World Order, The Great Reset, but it is so critically important. You have no idea of how this is all tying together, these historical stories I've been bringing you for the last two years, and how this is all coming down to 
this focalized so-called minute in time over the next several years. On the website, on the right side, radio.com, upper right side, click on the globalism page. It will give you the information on who to get in touch with so that you can make your comments to your senators, your congressmen, and very importantly, to the American representatives to this treaty convention with the WHO. I mean, get off the couch, folks. I'm telling you, this is big stuff, big stuff. We're not going to have the time to go into military readiness again today, but uh, I'll give you a little precursor. I'll go over it next week. This has to do with what's happening with all the social spending, COVID spending, and how that's cutting into the military budget. And the commander of the Space Force resigned several weeks ago, and he wrote a blistering piece on the Army all the head cheeses of the army, the secretary of dents about American military readiness and where we are way going astray. So that will have to be next week. Let's get into rat-a-tat-tat because it ties right into our story of globalism over the last two shows. And this will give you an idea of how money and power and corruption is driving this cleated wheel of globalism. Let's start off with $350 million in undisclosed royalties have been paid to the National Institutes of Health and the CDH. And guess who got lots of money? Francis Collins, the resigning director of and Anthony Fauci. What a big surprise. Tricky Tony Fraudulent Fauci. Open the Books CEO. By the way, Open the Books is the outfit that got this information after a huge court battle. And they still don't have it all. We draw the conclusion because in the first five years, there's been 134 million that we have been able to quantify of top line numbers that flowed from third party payers, meaning pharmaceutical companies or other payers, to NIH scientists. In fact, they have figured that 1,675 scientists at these American outfits, American government outfits, have received at least one payment. 36 million was paid out in 2014. And that is about $21,100 per scientist. By the way, the leadership at NIH, you know, Tricky Tony, they're receiving all sorts of third-party payments. Francis Collins, the past director, okay, he received 14 payments. Fauci has received 23 payments. His deputy, his second-in-command, Clifford Lane, have received eight payments. And there's actually... NIH employees who have received up to 271 payments, and 190 payments, and 188 payments, and 250 payments. Basically, so you understand, and I've brought you this story before, and everybody poo-pooed it, but when an NIH employee makes a discovery in their quote-unquote official capacity, the NIH owns the rights to any resulting patent, and then they license the patents for commercial use to companies that can bring products to market, you know, like Big Pharma. Basically, this is how corrupt this is. Employees are listed as inventors on the patents. They receive a share of the royalties that are obtained through any licensing or technology transfer. But basically, taxpayer money, your money and my money, has been funding their research, which benefits, of course, the researchers that are employed by NIH, because they become the patent inventors and they get the royalty payments from the licensees. What, it's not going back to the treasury? What, what is up with this program? And, you know, the stuff that this outfit was able to get, unlike 2005 where it listed the amount 
who paid it, like, you know, Pfizer or Moderna or whoever. This time, that's all redacted. And this was after, like, a year of FOIA litigation. So these are files that are basically a heavily redacted database. We don't know the payment amount. We don't know specifically the scientist. We don't know the name of the third-party player. NIH, just to put this in perspective, doles out $32 billion a year in grants to 56,000 grantees. Over an 11-year payment period, $350 million flowed back from those third-party payers that got these grants to these scientists who discovered the patents using taxpayer money. I mean, I want you to think about the incredible conflict of interest and corruption. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. In South Africa... They are having another wave of COVID. In fact, they have a 31.1% positivity rate. In other words, 31.1% of those being tested are positive for COVID. And they're also studying a recently identified, you know, here we go, guys. We're back on the roller coaster. COVID is the point of their spear. And they've identified a new coronavirus variant that is caused for, quote, serious concern and stokes fears that the country may face a potentially severe fourth wave, unquote, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that could spread internationally. Well, of course, yeah. By the way, this new variant, B.1.1529, let me give you a quote, okay, because, you know, they're ramping it up. Remember, we got elections coming. Here is a mutation variant of serious concern. This is South Africa Health Minister. We were hopeful we might have a longer break in between waves, possibly that it would hold off to late December or even next year in January. Hmm. Militant leftists, another rat-a-tat-tat here for you. You've probably heard of this. They belong to a group called Ruth Senus, after Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You know, she was great friends with the conservative justice on the court. I think she would roll in her grave to see these leftist militants doing what they're doing. But they basically dox the home addresses of the five conservative justices and our buddy John there, the chief justice. And there's now people camped out at these people's houses. In fact, the Justice Alito had to be removed from Washington with his family for safety reasons. But the left is so tolerant, folks. You know, they're so peace-loving. Yes. Think about the left, what they can do, what they're capable of as ideologues and as on the lowest rungs of the totem pole, useful idiots, as Lenin called his followers. Think about power that I was describing in this WHO treaty. Think about the power in the hands of these people. Not a pleasant thought. Okay, Senator Johnson's office. He's terrific, by the way. Senator Johnson from Wisconsin. Send him some money, okay? He has a uh, two-for-one going. You can go to secure.winred.com. Ron Johnson victory and it'll come up and you can get some money to him and it's a multiplier do it folks get off the couch then we have we have corporate media right they're cherry-picked experts and all of them promise that uh, US Airlines would see mass cancellations when there was no massless travel starting like two weeks ago but guess what as usual, they are just flat but wrong. JetBlue canceled 0% of flights, Delta 1%, American 0, United 0, and Southwest 0. So much for the talking heads once again. Now we have the cruise ship stuff going on. We have 90 cruise ships out there on the waters. 
They are 99.95% vaxxed crew and passengers. And yet, they've had huge COVID outbreaks. In fact, 60 of the 90 ships out there on the high seas have now been coated orange, the top level of concern for COVID infections by the CDC, and they're investigating all the ships. Oh, I'm sure all those people are just really happy they got the jab or the third or the fourth or whatever. So that's seven out of 10 cruise ships on the high seas, folks. 62 of the 91 ships, all fully vaxxed. Okay, great. Canada, the jab numbers in Canada, they're, you know, they're not looking too good. Those truckers were right on up there to, to go truckers. The April 10th to April 17th report, which just came out, here's what it has to say. The total deaths in Canada were unjabbed, that is no vaccine, one. One shot, five. Two shots, 63. And three shots, 160. Let me put this in perspective. 226 out of 227 weekly deaths were fully or partially jabbed. That's 99.95% death rate jabbed versus unjabbed. Then we have tampons. Oh, yes, tampons. What a great subject matter for On the Right Side Radio. In Oregon, they have voted in the Oregon public schools to feature free tampon dispensaries and instructions, by the way, just in case you don't know what a tampon is, for use in all bathrooms, including boys' bathrooms. (laughs) That's great. You know, there's a really interesting thing going on. All these documents and these handwritten notes, including by Peter Strzok, you know, (laughs) that champion of law, justice, and equal application of the law. It seems that there's some handwritten notes by him. Guess who ordered, personally and specifically, the takedown of General Flynn, Barack Obama, and Joe Biden on January 5th, according to Peter Strzok's own notes? What have we been saying for years? Well, here it is, folks. Another conspiracy theory turned truth. And Denise D'Souza's 2000 Mules movie, you have to see it. You have to see it. And we have the whole movie for you with a link on the website, upper right, homepage, and on the current show, 2,000 Mules. Watch it. Get your group prepared to be involved in this election. And last but not least, since we're out of time, our egg price watch. That's right, our egg price watch. Egg prices, folks, are about to skyrocket. You know, this all goes back to the food shortage. By the way, great video. Under the audio bar, current show on the food shortage around the world. I think you'll find it extremely interesting on the rightsideradio.com. So I told you last week when we were talking about food problems that millions of poultry, poor poultry birds, are being, uh, you know, axed, shall we say. So bird flu is harmless to humans. It's extremely dangerous to poultry. Karen Risposley, who is an, kind of a poultry expert, 28 million hens, that's 9% of the entire hen population in the United States, have been put to death. That has pushed the price of eggs up 12% in just a week. A dozen eggs right now, check your supermarket shelves, are averaging $1.66. Even worse, a pound of liquid egg, which is a key to snacks, baked goods, salad dressings, you name it, has jumped from 86 
$0.08 at the start of March to $2.58 a pound on May 3rd. Now, you don't think that they're putting the big squeeze on you from every single angle up there at globalist headquarters around the world? Well, think again. And remember, you can read all these rat-a-tat-tats in depth in the articles under Rat-a-tat-tat, current show. Don't miss them. And hopefully this show has inspired you to look in the mirror, to speak with your family, and to repeat after me. I will muster. I will stand. I will not comply. I will never give in. I will never stop fighting. I will join with those in these United States and across the globe who love freedom as I do. And we will win. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. We'll talk at you next week. Please remember, if you've missed any shows, just click on Show Archive and you'll find all of his shows. We look forward to seeing you here again next week for another episode of Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side. 